This is Unstructured. Hi, I want to start this episode by saying thanks for checking out this podcast. I know your time is limited, so I really appreciate it. Today's interview is with the international best-selling author, David Rollins. He writes fun, action-packed novels that Nelson DeMille has aptly described as nonstop action and superb suspense. As of this recording, he has 14 books, including seven in his very popular Ben Cooper series, two featuring Tom Wilkes of the Special Air Service, one standalone thriller, and Field of Mars, historical fiction about the Lost Legion. This interview also explores his new controversial documentary, Trial of Midnight Rider, Railroaded in the Deep South. This is very real because, first off, it was a terrible, tragic accident where a young woman lost her life. That can never be overlooked. But the tragedy reached even more lives, put a man in jail, and took a father away from his family. Please listen in and consider watching the documentary. On the technical side, Skype and internet connections took a dump, so we had to finish on his iPhone. But he can still be understood. With that, meet David Rollins. Hey everyone, welcome back to Unstructured. This week, I'm super excited to have David Rollins. He's a best-selling, internationally best-selling author out of Australia. I met David, well, geez, over a decade ago now. When he was on tour here in the States, he visited my wife's library, and I had a great time getting to know him. And I'd like to share him with everybody today. So how are you doing, David? Mm, hey, Eric. I'm good, mate. Um, nice to be here. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Boy, it's been a while. I've I know. never really asked you much about your past. I've, I've read a little bit of the, the blurbs about it and things that I'm guessing. Now, were you born in Sydney or? Yeah, unfortunately, I have a really boring middle class background. Born and raised in Sydney, you know, um, lived in a sort of a reasonable kind of suburb, went to a reasonable kind of school. Uh, yeah, um, n- nothing too exciting in my in my background um, in that regard. Well, it's starting to get a little more exciting. I understand you have tried to become a pilot in the military. Yeah, look, you know, I've always had a love affair with um, airplanes. You know, I you had sort of control line airplanes, model airplanes, anything to do with flying I was into. And I was desperate to join the Air Force um, after school. Didn't quite make the cuts. Um, for a, a bunch of reasons and well, actually one particular reason I which I, I botched an interview and um, and I had pretty much no support from my parents to to go any further so um, I, I sort of had to find another way to make a living okay. but I, I, I did eventually get on to, into airplanes I got a, a pilot's license and full aerobatic endorsements and all sorts of stuff so I did eventually, you know, come to satisfy my my flying dream. That's awesome. That's awesome. So before that, you did um, you went to journalism school, or your variant of it? No. Well, well yeah. I, I um, it seems like kind of yesterday, and also a long time ago. Um, but I, after school, after you know, I, I failed to um, get into air for, into the air force. I took a job as a copy boy for a, in a publishing house and they put me on in the motoring department. So mm. I, um, I was a, sort of just the office dog's body, uh, you know, for a while, fetching cars, getting coffees for people. And then uh, they, um, 
but the view was always to get me uh, uh, started on a journalism cadetship, which you could do back then, you know, train on the job. Um, and so that's what I did. I, I got a, a journalism cadetship. So all my friends were um, were at university, you know, studying whatever whatever that was. You know, most of the time I spent studying was going to the bar, and I was doing <laughs> that too. Um, except I was sort of driving up in the latest whiz bang car or motorcycle, and and so that was uh, a fairly a fairly sort of cool cool way to uh, start my working career. Um, yeah, and some, sometimes I wish I should have I should have stayed in it, but but anyway, I didn't. And there you go. Okay, you you have an affinity to motorcycles. You do, did some uh, motorcycle racing too, or, or yeah, I yeah. I uh, for a time, you know, I was um, assistant editor or, or, or editorial assistant of of a couple of motorcycle publications, and um, you know, I, I just kind of fell into lockstep with the readership, really, and and. Um, Got heavily into motorcycles, including racing. I, I raced a Kawasaki Mac Four um, Triple uh, H2 um, two-stroke death bike, you know. And I souped <laughs> it up. <laughs> I made oh, it man. even more easily by souping it up. And um, I had a sort of crack at that until I ran out of out of money. Um, I think I. I'd lied to every bank um, in in the neighbourhood to, to you know to raise funds to race, but eventually I, I had to you know face the facts that I was never going to be Casey Stoner or uh, you know um, Valentino Rossi and uh, had to give it away. Um, but no, I enjoyed it. I loved it. Look, anything with an engine, you've got me. Hmm. Well, I have to tell you, uh, you're sounding less boring by the second. I I don't call your background uh, too boring at all. It's uh pretty death-defying and adventurous, if you ask me, especially on a motorcycle track. Look, I, I, I have to say I I've kind of feel I've sucked it dry, you know. Um, I've never been, never really wanted to, you know, kind of sit down and, and put my feet up. You know, I, I, the research I do for my books is, is one of the things I really love about the writing. So I've been to some fairly crazy places, Um uh, and you know, like took up scuba diving and boxing and all sorts of things just to, you know, as part of uh, what I consider to be a, an education that every male should have to some degree. So, so you're um, Renaissance man, kind of. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but but um, yeah, no, I do like uh, I do like throwing myself into things. I'm getting a bit old for that now, though. Now, like I'm. I'm sorry to tell you, I'm pushing sixty. I don't feel sixty. I, I like I feel thirty, but then, you know, um, I look in the mirror and and it, it doesn't kind of the tooth, the image, the image of myself and the image in the mirror don't quite uh, quite marry. So uh, I maybe say, I have to. I would say you're the same. You just maybe don't recover quite as quickly. True. Very true. But um, so now. Okay, from journalism, you were an ad man for a while, I think you said. Can you elucidate on that? Or? Yeah, I, I it's okay. So when I was racing motorbikes, there was a guy um, in that sort of life who I knew to be an advertising copywriter, and and you know, like I think, like most people back then, I just thought ads made themselves. You know, they just appeared, they kind of winked into existence, and <laughs> no one actually did them. But but then I discovered that. The guy over the other side of the paddock who had the 
a big black, you know, Ford, you know, um, pickup and um, an amazing, you know, motorcycle which he raced was an advertising copywriter. So he seemed to be having a lot more fun than I, right, mm. or than me. And um, so I, I kind of investigated it and um, I don't know what how it, ha- how it happened, but I, I decided that um, – you know, that advertising is where I wanted to go and that's where I, I sort of jumped to after my kind of almost the, the day after my journalism cadetship um, finished and I was, uh, you know, awarded a, a grading in journalism, I, I left that that job and, and went to advertising. Um, and I had a huge amount of fun for many years in advertising. You know, it was everything I thought it would be. You know, I, I got um, heavily into, you know, winning awards and, living that, that advertising life, which is kind of sort of similar to the, the things you see on TV. It's incredibly cutthroat um, and can be very exciting, but it it's it's the sort of um, occupation that sucks you dry. And I, and I, do, I did find that, um, you know, after a while I was starting to think the whole thing was a bit shallow. It's a, it's a bit like Groundhog Day, you know, every meeting – Mm-hmm. You know, ends up being the same. Can you make the logo bigger? You know, etc. Um, anyway, um, yeah, I, I had fun for a long time, but then um, it ceased to be fun, which is when I got out of it. How, how long? How long were you in it? A long time. Um, well over twenty years. Oh wow! Look, I, I still do a little bit of advertising these days. You know. I, um, for friends who who kind of call on me, and if if I like the job and the the jobs I seem to like are fall into the tourism bracket, <laughs> uh, uh, I'll I'll do them, you know, and do them with a smile. But but you know, sort of doing that, doing advertising on a daily basis, um, I find fairly de- mentally debilitating. Mm. I recently interviewed a innovation expert. And he was saying that in the the field, innovation, marketing, advertising, he said that they tend to be in three-year cycles, job to job to job, because it's kind of like, okay, I've done what I can do here, moving on. I've done what I can do here, moving on. I didn't know if you might have felt some of that, too. I mean, 20 years is a long time. At a- oh, yeah. Look, I, I think um, I think for most people, you know, 20 years is about as long as you can stay in any kind of occupation before it starts to wear wear you down and and your friend your innovation friend is probably right three years is a good stint in any one particular place i mean in my in in my case it's it's about how long it takes for people to know me and (laughs) decide they don't want me around anymore so okay (laughs) all right so that brought you to um, writing books. Now, did you start writing while you were um, doing the advertising? I did. I, I did quite a few books when I was still in advertising. You know, it was I. I um, like a lot of copywriters. I, you know, always said I was going to write a book, and um, but unlike a lot of copywriters, I actually did it and enjoyed it, and. Um, Took me a long time to get published, actually, and uh, uh, and I um, that was quite a hard road, uh, but I persisted, and um, you know, pu- publishing is well back then. We're, we're talking, you know, two thousand, so 
legacy publishing, what I guess they call legacy publishing, was the only publishing really, you know. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so the, the um, Random House, the Macmillan, the, you know, Simon & Schuster, all those sort of characters – that was the only only gig in town if you wanted to um, to be uh, I guess what you call serious writer a published a published author, um, but it's a very difficult um, market to crack because uh, you know to some degree you're probably a publisher's worst nightmare if you've never had a book published. Mm -hmm. You know they, they've got to spend a lot of money and a lot of time for not a lot of return um, in the hope that you might just jag some public interest in your in whatever it is you write about mm -hmm. um, so whatever you do uh write has to be better than anything anyone else is doing <laughs> right to have any sort of a chance so it's it you know pu publishing is a lot easier now um it, because you can self-publish on things like amazon i mean you, you might not sell any but at least you can be published mm -hmm. um and if you're if you are if you're actually really good with the social marketing, you probably can find, uh, you know, a market out there. But but anyway, sort of back when I started, it was a, it was a very different ball game. And, and I I wrote this manuscript, and I rewrote it, and I rewrote it, and I rewrote it. And seriously, I must have written this thing, you know, thirty bloody times. It just got to the point where you you know I the story became a donut. I, I never I didn't know where it began or where it ended, you know, because I just kept going round and round. Once I finished, I'd start again at the beginning and and try and, and hone it and make it better and better and better. And um, uh, it got to the point where I was, I felt actually physically sick uh, reading this thing again, but I was determined to to um, to get this, this book published and um, – I eventually got to a point where, well, no one told me, you know, I'd put it out every now and then to some friends or family and say, well, you know, tell me what you think. No one told me that it was worthless garbage. Mind you, they were friends and family um, who, were, who were sort of giving their recommendations. Um, uh, so I just, you know, I kept going and um, eventually I sent the first 100 pages of this manuscript out to 76 publishers around the world and every single one of them rejected it, hmm. including the publisher who eventually took it. Okay. Um, so you contacted publishers before agents? Yeah, I was told. I gave the, the manuscript to a manuscript assessor who assessed it and said, oh, this is really great. You'll have no problems. Um, don't bother going to agents. Just go direct to publishers. Um, so I wasted a year down, going down that road. Um, and the reality I discovered uh, was that publishers mostly don't accept unsolicited, back then may have changed, mostly didn't accept uh, unsolicited manuscripts. They also uh, didn't or couldn't afford to have a reader sitting around reading the slush pile that, you know, they get, you know, man unsolicited manuscripts come in every single day. So there's a, most of these um, publishing companies had a room, which they called the slush pile, where they just threw the manuscripts that came in on a daily basis and they couldn't afford to have anyone, you know, to read them. So what they relied on or relied on to, you know, to find the cream were agents. So reputable agents who 
you know, who read a manuscript and who thought it was worthy enough for publication would, you know, put that particular manuscript forward and uh, the publishers would think, well, you know, if this particular agent thinks it's good enough to spend some time of their day promoting, you know, uh, given they've only got eight hours, then it must be worth us having a look. Um, so I th- that's how it used to work. And in fact, that's how it ended up working for me. You know, I did find an agent who read the book and, and, uh, well, I sent her a hundred pages and she, she called me within an, an hour to say, send the rest over, uh, which I got very excited about. <laughs> uh, and, and I did, and, you know, she made me rewrite it again a couple of times. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're like, no. wait a minute! I could have saved twenty-eight times. Yeah, <laughs> I got yeah. it. Anyway, and, and then pretty much within two weeks of her putting it out to a publisher, I had a a two book deal, and uh, I thought, well, there you go. I'm away. I'm away to you know being a, a an author, living the life. You know, just sitting in my in my sort of jacket with leather elbow patches and a pipe <laughs> um, writing away how good is that going to be <clears throat> didn't end up that way but um uh but that's how i got started as i said it's different now you know it's it's the, the way it's different now actually is is um the reason you need a publisher uh is for distribution now in, in australia we used to have a number of um, big book chains. There was Borders, Collins, Angus and Robinsons, and Dimmicks. I mean, some of those used to exist, I think, in America, for example. Borders. But yeah. they've, all, they've, all, or, they've all gone in Australia except for um, Dimmicks. So um, distribution is has has essentially been taken over by Amazon's algorithm. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you have a readership, it kind of makes sense to let that algorithm do the distribution for you and not give, you know, 80% of the retail cover price to a publisher for essentially doing nothing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for someone like my, um, Michael Connolly or Kathy Reichs or, or you know, Patricia Cornwell, etc., you know, Nelson DeMille, it makes great sense for them just to put a, a book out and not, go through a publisher um, because the readers are going to find those books and give them, you know, uh, the lion's share of the, of the retail price of the book. Um, if you are an unpublished author, then essentially you, you publish your book on, on Amazon and, and, and it will be very, it's very unlikely it will find readers because the algorithm doesn't know what to do with it. Right. Couple questions. One, how in the world did you persist? Because seventy was seventy six submissions, well over a year. That is not um, something most people can tolerate. Is it because you were in ads and and used to possibly rejection there, or I don't know. No, that's actually no very good point. Um, I, I think you're right. Uh, you know, advertising is all about rejection. Um, so. To, in a funny sort of way, you know, when you get rejected, when your concert gets rejected in advertising, you go, okay, well, I'll do a better one, right? I'll do another one. Mm-hmm. There's another idea out there, always is, right? So I guess I had that attitude. But I came from a family of a lot of writers and journalists, and 
um, it was a point of honour to me, I guess, to to get this thing across the line. You know, I was determined to, you know, to prove that I could write, you know, because I was being in advertising, I was the black sheep of the family. Mm. I, I felt I was, you know, my, my, my parents say that's not true, but back then I kind of felt, you know, the, the, somehow I'd let the team down because I'd gone into this the shallow world, world of advertising rather than journalism. And um, even though I was writing, it wasn't real writing. Mm. So mm. maybe I could, you know, redress that by getting a book published. And then there's the arrogance of of me just thinking I, I, I could do it. I guess, you know, I just kind of felt that maybe I, I had had what it took to, to to write and get published. But, you know, I, I don't actually think that anymore. It's But I, that might have been one of the things I thought, thought back then. Well, you kind of need that. I mean, you have to have some sort of armor around you and it sounds like a, maybe a little chip on your shoulder, which all that helps, I would think. Yeah. I mean, gravity. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the arrogance thing... Uh, yeah, I think that was maybe important back then, but it's interesting now, you know, I, I just, it's what I do. I think that arrogance is gone. It's just what I do now. It's not, it's not, uh, I, I don't feel, you know, that I, I, I guess I live, now I'm in awe of really great journalists rather than really great authors, if you know what I mean. So, um, I, People who break stories, who are and who are fearless in in the breaking of those stories, are the, are the people I admire these days. So I think there's been a bit of a shift for me in that regard. Well, could it be you're coming on about twenty years? <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, that's that's also why I, I I regret that I didn't persist with journalism, even though I mean, let's let's you know clearly journalism has taken a major hammering over the last 20 years, you know, with the the redistribution of advertising dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very hard to support journalism the way it used to be supported now because just the, you know, advertising market is fragmented so much and and advertising has paid for a lot of, well, the lion's share of journalism. Mm -hmm. You know, once once those newspapers lose their their advertisers, they... uh, they're going to rely on on pure sales, and and there just aren't the sales there these days to to support um, uh, the payment of of great journalism. Ironically, here in the states, what I've read and heard killed newspapers and journalism more than anything was Craigslist. Oh, okay, I wasn't aware of that because the classified ad section is actually the lion's share of where the newspaper made money. Every day people would sell things in classifieds and suddenly there's this free online source and everybody just went to it and that gutted their entire budget. Okay, yes, no, you're right. I mean, um, sorry, I, the, the, the Craigslist thing threw me a bit. So Rupert Murdoch used to re- refer to the classified sections of his newspapers as the rivers of gold. Exactly. Right? So the, those rivers dried up. So, yes, I agree, 100%. You mentioned that your family is, you have a lot of journalists in your family. And- yeah, we, um, we've, we have a long history of great journalism in my family. My mother was, uh, she was actually kissed by the Beatles when they stepped off the plane in 1964. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, my cousin Mary was a TV journal of some fame. My, I had uncles and 
and great uncles who reported on the Japanese advance along the Kokoda Trail. And uh, I've had, you know, editors of major, well, in my family, there have been editors of the major new Australian newspapers, quite, quite, quite well-known, um, you know, journos in, in this part of the world anyway. And then along comes little old black sheep who, um, me, who gets a job <laughs> in advertising, you know, doing stuff for refrigerators and dog food. You're doing the stuff that pays their bills. It's a living. Well, yeah, but who sold the paper? Yeah, yeah. Ads. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it is kind of funny. We all have these, our own issues, our own demons, our own thoughts. Now, you mentioned um, you still do some travelogue type of things for advertising, or at least you advertise in the travel industry, and you seem to travel a, a good little bit for the books. Mm. Yeah, the travel is, is something, I, you know, that I really enjoy many of the books, not all, because some of them are set in some pretty horrendous places like the latest one, Kingdom Come. Uh, a lot of that's set in Syria, and I haven't been to Syria and no desire to go there. But, yeah, you know, um, I've spent a lot of time in mostly third world countries, you know, kind of seeing how they tick on the ground, and I really enjoy that. And I think it really, it, it certainly helps you know, when you write about these places to know what it smells like when the rain hits the pavement, you know, mm -hmm. for, you know, um, it really gives you a wonderful sense of place. So I try and do that, you know, whenever possible. And my wife has come along on, on many of those travels, which has also been great. Actually, one of the most memorable trips we did was for um, research into the zero option, which was set in Russia. Now, we went in 2006, 2005 mm -hmm. to Siberia, because the, you know, part of that book, you know, the particular, you know, sort of hero, I guess, the main protagonist in that in that book had to go to Russia to to find someone, and and he went without doing any research. So I I felt I had to do the same thing, just hmm. essentially go to Russia and and stumble about around and try and find, you know, what I needed to find, and. All the travel agents that we, you know, we spoke to said, you're mad, you're crazy, don't do it. You know, it, it, you, you just, it won't work. You, you know, you won't achieve anything, you won't get anywhere, and it's dangerous, don't do it. This Now I think that's kind of ridiculous, you know, looking back. Um, but at the time, you know, it was only, you know, I don't know, 10, 12 years after, you know, um, well, Russia, you know, the wall came down in, what, 91, mm -hmm. um, Berlin Wall came down in '91, but but I think Russia had a long period of disruption, and it was only just starting to get back up on its feet, really, in in 2000, you know, in '99, 2000. Right. So this was a couple of years after that, and and I guess the perception persisted that it was a bit of a basket case. Um, anyway, we went, and uh, my wife and I, and we went to Siberia, and it was freaking cold, <laughs> and. You know, we sort of muddled around trying to find gulags, which was probably not a particularly sensible thing to do. I didn't find any, but had a had a very interesting trip and learned a lot of really great stuff. Like, for example, and this is I think this is in the book. In in Russia, they they well in in Siberia they drink a lot of vodka, right? Okay, that's I, I thought that was a cliche. It didn't really happen. It does. People start drinking at about eight in the morning, and. <laughs> The reason they do in, in Siberia is because if they drink tea, okay, when they drink tea, when, when they've been outside and they come in and it's, let's say, it's, you know, 20 below outside, when they come in and they, they, if they were to drink tea, their teeth would crack. 
And mm. you see a lot of people with cracked teeth, stained, mm. really bad stained cracked teeth because that's, you know, that's what they've done. So it's a bit like, um, yeah, so that's why they drink vodka because it's warming and it's, you know, you drink it cold and your teeth don't crack. Jeez. Right? So And life sucks. Stuff like that. <laughs> Yeah, you, you don't get that. You don't find that in um, in uh, Lonely Planet, right? So it's stuff like that that you get when you're on the ground. Anyway, so, yeah, we'll try, I try and go wherever, you know, where possible, um, walk the weeds, makes a big difference. What is your process like while you are traveling? Because you are researching. Are, are you just scratching notes everywhere? Do you um, um, just use a recorder, kind of talk, take notes over time, or do you just sort of absorb the environment and let things simmer? Probably all of the above. Mostly I, I, I take photographs and hmm. the photographs kind of recall mo the moments unless there's a specific thing that I, is, is hugely significant and then I'll, then I'll make a note. But it's mainly photographs, which I did this big trip in, in uh, South America and for – standoff and the last day i was in south america my bag was stolen with my mm. camera so mm. i just done this whole trip all recorded camera stolen uh, that was the thing that and it, it wasn't even the camera or the bag that, sh that that got to me it was the chip in the camera mm -hmm. but sure that was it gone done served me right for blinking <laughs> Do you use um, like iPhone now or Android or something in the cloud to kind of help mitigate yeah, some yeah, of the I mean, risks? Yes, definitely. This was, I think, in iPhone 2. Right, and it sucked. Yeah, it wasn't that great. <laughs> now with my trusty iPhone 8, um, I can go anywhere and do anything. Yeah, they're getting amazing. They really are. Now, what is your writing process? Up until fairly recently, I, I've... I've looked at it as a job, writing as a job. So I you know, get up in the morning and do whatever I do, and then I sit down at the computer at, at you know, let's say 9 o'clock, and I would write a minimum of 2,000 words. Okay, so if, if, I, if I managed to get that 2,000 words written by 3 p.m., then that would be when I'd stop, you know, or if, if it took until 8 p.m., then again, you know, that's, that's how I'd keep writing until I banked my 2,000 words. But I think that's, it's kind of gone by the by a little in the last few years because of this, the involvement with this documentary and writing became something I did in between the cracks almost. But, you know, I need to try and get back to that regimented process because otherwise writing a book takes way too long. I mean, I think it's been almost four years since I've had a book out, which is too long between drinks. Wow. Well, that is bringing us to another topic. You recently just released a documentary. What brought that about? Yeah, the documentary. Well, way back in, I don't know, 2008, Something like that. I, I got a call from a uh, an American screenwriter who was interested in optioning uh, one of my books. In fact, the Zero Option, the one I went to Siberia to research. And her name was uh, Jodie Savin. She uh, she was a screenwriter as well as a producer, and and um, she um, wrote a script based on that book. And I was sort of not really involved, but every now and then she would call me to tell me how it was coming along, and she sent a draft across, and we discussed that and. I never really got to, to meet Randall. Her her husband was Randall Miller, 
but I did get to meet him a number of years later, passing through America. I called in and and stayed with him at the end of one of my research trips. And I got to to meet Randy, met him, spent a couple of days. I was spent most of the time with Jody, you know, going over writing issues. Then one day I, I was looking at a paper and I saw that there'd been this horrendous accident on a, on a trestle bridge in uh, South Georgia and a freight train had run through a film set established on the tracks and killed a camera assistant. And Randall Miller was a the way that the story went in the paper, it was clear that uh, this has been blamed on um, on Miller. So I rang Jody and you know asked her, you know for the story what, what what's what's really happened, and she didn't want to talk to me about it and wouldn't talk to me about it for months and months. It was only after about six to eight months of me pestering that she finally, you know, said, "Look, uh, it's it's a complicated story. It's not as all not not." nearly as cut and dried as the as it is in the newspaper and or in the media rather and she sent me a, some depositions from three people involved in the film company one was the location manager one was the first assistant director and one was the uh, third deposition was from the unit production manager and all three of those people said that they never told Randy Miller Randall Miller the director of this of this film that they didn't have permission to be on the tracks. And yet Randall was Miller was the person who was being blamed for this accident happening, which just didn't seem right to me. And cl- because also the, the, the way the story was uh, written in the, in the media was that Randall Miller knew he didn't have permission to go out on those railroad tracks, but ignored that and took the film crew out there anyway. And as a result of his responsibility, a young girl was uh, hit by a train and lost her life. So but that, that's very tragic, but it just seemed that, you know, Miller, was it really his fault? So I said to Jody, look, I'd really like to have a look at this. I mean, it just, it's, something's going on here. It doesn't seem to, you know, make sense. Also, the, the photographs I saw of Randall Miller standing on, standing on the tracks, you know, um, clearly oblivious that there was any sort of danger. I mean, apparently they, they, they did 12 different setups with that bed on the tracks, Um before the train came along, and the intention was to do two more. Now, that is not the behaviour of someone who thinks uh, that they're at risk of being hit by a train. Mm-hmm. You know, it just didn't just didn't make sense to me. So I started to look into it. But I said to Jody that if I found anything along the way that suggested that you know Randall uh, knew he didn't have permission to be on those tracks, uh, then that was going in the documentary too. She said, you know, essentially go for it. So uh, the documentary is, is what you see is, is essentially what I found. Now, and I found that Randall Miller had been framed. Um, now, that, that is a really unpopular finding because, you know, the film crews in Georgia um, are, you know, basically hugely protective of their own. They lost one of their own in, in Sarah Jones, who was killed by the train, which is terribly tragic, an accident that didn't need to happen. And the fact that Randall Miller took a plea, um, went to jail, as far as they're all concerned, that, you know, um, that's him accepting guilt. And um, and he only went to jail for a year. That's not right. That's not fair. You know, he killed this girl, and so therefore he should be in jail for a very much longer time. And this documentary comes along and 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 comes to a different conclusion, 
based on evidence, I have to say, that has never been made public or hasn't been readily available to the public until now, and they're not interested in, in looking at that or, or considering it. They like the story they've got, and they want Randall sort of nailed up, and and that's that's what they want. So, yeah, it's been a it's been a very interesting and continues to be an interesting journey. But I would like the journey to come to an end now, <laughs> basically, so I can get back to writing. What what is it? Um, what is it done with you personally? I I know that it's been controversial. Um, it seems like it's it's had a, a toll on on your life. Yeah, I mean, I I really feel like I have been sentenced along with Randall Miller. You know, I, I the more I got involved in this, the more I became incensed at the injustice of what had happened, which sucked me in further, right? Because I just think it's unfair and unreasonable and unjust. And I, and I want to make it help make it right. You know, what's the truth? Tell people, what the, you know, give people the truth of what actually happened. Um, but it's, you know, this is not fiction. This is, you know, this is a, um, a this is a very different world, and it's the detail that I've had to become, you know, immersed in, um, has essentially taken over my life, you know, to, to a very great degree and continues to do so, even though the documentary is out. You know, I'm, I'm, I speak to Randy almost on a daily basis these days. Um, and unfortunately, because I think he does suffer from PTSD, um, he relives this, you know, accident over and over and over and what he could have done and what, what's happened to him since. And uh, what he could have done to prevent it, um, and uh, it's just become a little Groundhog Day, to be honest. You know, it's um, you know, I, I just want I just want the story to come to a very nice conclusion, you know, so I can write the end and turn the cover on on this story and move on. I also think it it's it's would be healthier for Randy if that that happened. It certainly would be healthier for me if it happened, and my wife would be a lot happier. And <laughs> and I know Randy's wife would be a lot happier too. But and Randy and I just seem to be you know kind of stuck in this stuck in this uh, groove at the moment. <laughs> what is going on with Randy now? Is he able to work? Able to do anything? Um... Okay, so the, the, the interesting thing, well, one of the many interesting, you know, facts of this case is the, the verdict. Now, Randall Miller accepted the plea. Part of the plea deal was that he would spend two years reduced to one year in the county jail for good behaviour. Um, also, uh, he, for 10 years, he's on uh, uh, probation. Sorry, not probation, parole, parole. And he is, the wording I think goes, it runs along the line of he, he is not allowed to direct and be in charge of safety. So that's quite an ironic, that's quite an ironic condition of or, or part of his sentence because the fact is that the director 
on a movie set is not in charge of safety ever. The director's role on set is to capture the performance of the actor. Mm -hmm. um, that's their sole responsibility. The role of safety on set falls squarely, most squarely, rather, on the shoulders of the first assistant director. Like if you're on a set, the first assistant, if you're not, not familiar with um, being on a movie set, the first assistant director, you might mistake that person for being the director because the first AD is the one ordering everyone around, telling everyone what to do. Um, the director often just sits quietly and has the you know word in the ear of the, the actor or the cinematographer. Mm. You know, the first AD is the is is the the conductor of the set, if you like, and or conductor of the orchestra. And um, number two in line is the unit production manager, and number three in this instance is the location manager. And the location manager's role is is to ensure that. The permits for the locations that are that are used by the film company have been granted and are all in order. And well, anyway, so those three people, the first AD, the, the um, location manager, the unit production manager, all failed in their duty to essentially ensure that this, you know, location on the train tracks was safe. Um, it was never Randy's job. So the fact now that he has part of his condition for, um, you know, his um, sentence is is worded that he can he is not allowed to be a director and in charge of safety, or he is not allowed to direct and be in charge of safety, is kind of crazy. It's ironic, um, and not in a good way. So is he able to direct at all using the uh, definition by the DJ? Or was it Director's yeah. Guild, et cetera? Yeah. Um, well, the, the, that's uncertain territory. Interestingly, however, it's kind of crazy, but when he was in jail, the um, the sheriff said to him, if, you know, when you're an electrician, you come to my jail, you know, we get you to fix the wiring. When you're a plumber, you have to fix the pipes. If you're a director, you can make us a movie. Okay, so here he is in jail. It's part of his sentence isn't allowed to direct and be in charge of safety. Um, does that mean he can't direct? Well, according to the, the sheriff, uh, he can direct. So th the sheriff has Randy um, make a movie about drug court and the drug problem that they have in Wayne County, which is significant. And um, But Randy has to raise the money for the equipment, you know, for the computers, for the you know editing gear, for the cameras, all, all of it. Um, so yes, he has directed a movie. He, the, it was the first thing he did after his sentence, after being sentenced and sent to jail was to direct a movie. Different kind of so chain I, gang. And, you know, it's, it's talk about irony, you know, um, that's the, the, there's heaping some more on, on him right there. Speaking of, um, funding, how did you go about funding the documentary? Yes. Well, this is something that, you know, my wife is not pleased about. Um, we funded it, largely. Um, there's been a little help from, you know, uh, some people who, once I started to, to, you know, find some interesting facts on this um, that that hadn't seen the light of day, uh, showed them to Jody a 
some people who were, you know, kind of investors in Randy's movie in the past um, donate a, li- a little money to keep the thing going, but it, you know, a little talking about a little money, most of it came out of my savings plan. Mm. How is it? Is it doing all right? It's doing okay. Um, without you know, it, it it doesn't look like it's going to pay back its investment um, because uh, documentaries aren't like movies. Um, you know, movies have a big opening weekend. There's lots of uh, you know lots of advertising. There's lots of fanfares. You know, it's you know, and, and the movie launches fanfare. People turn up tell their friends, more people go, and the, the investment hopefully is, is paid back fairly quickly. Documentaries are a much slower burn. You know, um, they take a while to, to pay back. If ever, I'm learning. You know, this is my first shot at, at, at doing something like this, so I wasn't totally, um, you know, appraised of, of how these things, you know, kind of work out in a, on a financial in a financial way. I mean, I've been accused of profiting off the death of Sarah Jones by the trolls who have, you know, who landed on, on Amazon the day after the film's released en masse and accused me of, of, you know, doing this horrible dirty on, on the memory of Sarah Jones. Yeah. A lot of money is not what this is all about. I'm hoping, however, that, you know, eventually it does find its way into the public, public's consciousness and um and you know like making a murderer did because it's not it's kind of in the same territory i guess as that as that film or as that documentary series um so we shall see um there is a publicity firm that's become interested in the story and they might be able to lift it out of uh, the trade and into the you know the public's into the zeitgeist we'll we'll, we'll see well, maybe they can put you with um, Netflix or something to get distribution on on there. Well, yeah, I mean, okay. So the original plan was, um, you know, we put it on uh, iTunes, Amazon, um, and Google Play, for example, and we and it's a pay per view thing. And and we thought, you know, I thought oh, we'll get four thousand views. That'll that'll pay pay back or the lion's share of it. That'll be good. Um, but it doesn't really happen that way because there's, there's very little advertising, very people know about it. There's no word of mouth. So it gets launched and it just sits there. Um, there's no, you know, it, the algorithm feeds it up to people who watch making a murderer probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that's about all. And so, yeah, the, the um, it's it's a completely different kettle of fish. Uh, we just have to wait and see. And selling to um, Netflix, okay, so we would get a small amount of money, and yes, it would get a wider audience, um, but it would never pay back its, mm. you know, it, um, its money because you know you don't get a lot from Netflix for these things. It's only if if it does extraordinarily well, and Netflix says, "Have you got any more episodes?" and then mm. you can negotiate with them. Um, but as it stands, um, it, it sort of looks unlikely that it's going to recover its costs, which is not making the home fires <laughs> burn that brightly. 
I'm um, sorry to hear that. Um, hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully over time the word will get out more and more. Yeah, I think so. Look, I think it's a, I think it's a good piece of work, and it is very controversial. I mean, I did I did say to Randy when he asked me what I how I thought it would do, and I said, look, you know, it's the the reality is that um, what will help it you know, uh, raises profile is public controversy. So if there are a whole bunch of people who rage against, you know, the conclusion the documentary comes to, and it doesn't actually voice a conclusion, but um, that is when journalists will become interested and they'll report on the controversy and the items in the documentary that have generated that controversy. So that's how it will probably work. And I I think, I still think that's true. but uh, th- there needs to be some sort of, you know, uh, you need some sort of critical mass to get that, that you know, that controversy going. Now, it, it was interesting, as I said, you know, on the day after the documentary is released, about 20, 21, 22 people landed on Facebook and all posted damning one-star reviews. This is garbage. Rollins is, should be disgraced for... Um, you know, producing this rubbish which tarnishes Sarah's memory. Randall Miller is a criminal and needs to burn in hell, essentially. Anyway, um, they all, as I said, arrived at the same time, left pretty much the same um, uh, review, which is hardly a review, and most of them say, don't watch this. I didn't watch it, and I'm I'm telling you, don't waste your time. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of ridiculous, um, but that's the, the 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 world we live in, the social social media world we live in now. You know, bullying and trolling is 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 a powerful force out there. So, if you go to Amazon now, you'll see that the documentary has got maybe ten five star, four star reviews, something like that. I've been sort of counted. This is on Amazon.com, mm-hmm. and twenty five. Don't watch this. Bring your pitchforks and. Flaming torches and let's string Randall Miller up and burn him at the stake. Um, uh, you know, so I think the, a thinking person would look at that and go, "Ooh, there's something here." I'm going to have to, you know, because the, I have to say that the, a, a lot of the, the five star reviews are very considered, and, and clearly, you know, um, the documentary has hit the right spot with at least those viewers. Um, so I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe it will 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 sort of get where it needs to go in terms of you know public recognition. We, we, we'll see. It just take some time and get in front of the, if it gets in front of the right person, even or just whatever. Sometimes it, it takes that yeah that time to go. Were you planning to ever do a documentary, um, or did you just fall into this? I just fell into it. I mean, I free fell into it. Free fall without a parachute. Yeah, it was never my intention. I didn't wake up. I, I, I wasn't hunting around for a, a, um, a sub, you know, a subject to do a documentary on. It just kind of happened. You know, I, I don't actually can't even recall the moment when I, when I went, I'm going to write a, you know, shoot a documentary. But I found myself going back and forth from Sydney to um, Jessup, Georgia, you know, half a dozen times uh, interviewing people, trying to find people. Um, it was, you know, it, it became um, a fairly tense, you know, um, undertaking. You know, I, I was sort of approached 
and buy gun-toting rednecks when I was staking out one particular um, house. I was threatened by, uh, with strangulation from, you know, the father of another guy involved, you know, who I was sort of trying to see. Um, I, I kind of, I heard such, you know, terrible stories about law enforcement in the Deep South in terms of, you know, the fact that they can pretty much do whatever they choose. Um, uh, that I got very nervous about some of the questions I was asking and, and, and the people I was approaching because, uh, you know, I was very much working without a net. It was just me and a camera um, more often than not. And given what had happened to Matt Randall Miller and what, what I was hearing and seeing, you know, I, maybe it's, it's because, of, you know, the sort of books I write, but I, I started to, be, you know, look over my shoulder quite a lot. Um, I, you know, I started to feel like a character in one of my books, really, there for a while. And, you know, that was quite seductive to a character like me anyway, I have to, you know, to a person like me, I have to admit, you know. Danger Man Rollins, <laughs> um, but but the, it is different when it is when it's real and and you know that um, you can be you know within some someone's power to do you harm and there's nothing you can do about it. The, the, when there is that potential, it it is kind of sobering and it and it does make you think long and hard about your next move. But you know. Nothing, nothing happened, and and ultimately, and and here I am. You know, I can talk about it, and but it, it's I, I would feel very nervous about going back to to that part of the world now. Yeah. I, I, it, it was not something I would I would do willingly. How about the process? I mean, it it's a well put together. You cut it together, everything. Do you have any background with film? How how did you go about that? Um. Yeah, the editor's done an amazing job, I think. Um, or the editors, rather, done an amazing job. I, look, um, yeah, I mean, in my role as an advertiser, copywriter and creative director, I've, you know, been involved in edit sessions, you know, for 20 years on various projects. You know, even, you know, kind of short advertising-type films. The thing about advertising is, you know, you, you have to tell a a story as economically as possible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, advertising is all about storytelling. Most of those stories are pretty shallow, but it is, you know, it is, you know, uh, you have to make make your meaning clear. Um, and and this, that was, you know, pretty helpful on this job. I mean, it could watch something and go, okay, this is wrong. You know, we need to do this. I need to explain that. Um, uh, so I think I was, you know, fairly key in the editing um, process. Um, you know, also the writing of the books. I mean, they're, they're, they can be quite intricate puzzles in their own right, you know, and but you still have to lead people through through the darkness to, to the light of the story, if you like, and, and the documentary is no different to that. I mean, it's not, it, it is a very complicated story. It, it seems slam dunk on the surface. You know, Miller took a plea, the girl was killed, he went to jail. You know, there you go, job done. But it, 
it was an onion with lots of different layers and the um you know that i think the documentary does a reasonably good job of peeling those layers away in a logical fashion so that you you, you know you don't get left high and dry and scratching your head about what the hell's going on um so in a profession you know in many ways it was it was quite a good thing to do, you know, um, coming from a family of journalists, as I mentioned earlier, and, and wanting to, and I guess wanting to be seen as, as not the black sheep of the family. So it was, <laughs> you know, maybe that was at work doing this documentary as well, you know, playing little games in my head. But, you know, look, I'm proud of what I've done, and I'm also proud that, that I, I think ultimately I've done the right thing for a human being who does not deserve to have been destroyed by something that was outside of his control. Mm-hmm. And he took the blame for a whole bunch of others a whole, and, and, and just random mistakes and, and has paid a terrible price for it. You know, it's, it's, it's quite, it's, and, and then when I sort of see and hear what the, what the trolls say about Randall Mill, I, I just, I, I don't think these people had any concept of, the number of lives that were affected by this accident, you know, I mean, you, you know, the the people involved, so many people involved with it have been, you know, kind of ruined for life. Right. Has Randall seen it? Yeah, he um, he saw a couple of, he, he kind of got involved in some of the later um, cuts and edits and um, was really helpful with, um, you know, lots of suggestions. Uh, I, th- I think he he likes the finished product. No, I'll rephrase that. I know he likes the finished product. Um, I I do, but I wonder whether I've, I've made a. There's one editorial decision that I'm not sure I made the right call on, and that was I interviewed Randall, and I'm the only person who has interviewed Randall since this accident happened, um, and I. The, the opening of the movie, uh, or the, the opening of the film, has Randall talking about the trolls and mm. the horrible things they say about him. And now, you know, if someone who wasn't sympathetic to Randall, and I'm only sympathetic because I've been on this journey and I and right. I I know the end point. If another unsympathetic journalist had got hold of that, they would have said, "Oh, Randall Miller cares about his himself. What about?" You know, the girl he killed, you know, how can he just be concerned about sticks and stones with, you know, trolls calling him names when, you know, clearly, you know, Sarah Jones deserves um, every ounce of his sympathy. And, you know, I, I can just see, you know, the, the, the way that would go. Now, I asked him a question. He answered, you know, as he answered, and I, and I opened the documentary with, with him talking about that that aspect of it mm-hmm. and i wonder if it's you know if by not you know calling you know the sarah jones card and 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 she's dead and you're alive and and you know i, I just wonder whether i've turned too many people off who, who straight away go you know well hang on a second um you know, this is a guy who took a plea for killing someone and he's talking about the trolls. Are you kidding? Right. So I just wonder, 
I told myself it was a really controversial way to open the documentary and, and, it, and it would get people hooked into seeing it. But maybe I think it would have been better to be a little more now, in hindsight, you know, maybe I should have kept my powder dry, you know, in the opening and, and sort of eased people into it rather than throwing them in, into into it. But, you know, you make these decisions and you have to live by them once once these things come out and there's nothing I can do to change it. It is what it is. No, you're addressing it now, in essence. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, I think when the by the time you get to the end of the documentary, if you were to go back to the beginning and see that opening, you go, no, mate, I, I completely see why you would be feeling the way you feel. Mm -hmm. But it, was, it would only be in the context of the whole movie that you would feel that way, I think, if you if you knew about this story and had a, had a point of view about it before you saw the documentary. So do you plan to do another documentary? Have you or more filming? Have you been bitten by the bug? Or was that just a, a one-time deal? It's, it's back to uh, back to writing, back to the cave. <laughs> well, you know, I guess I'd never say never. Look, I, I, who knows, you know, I mean, you know, you put these things out, you never know um, what will come back to you as a result of them. I mean, someone might phone tomorrow and say, hey, I saw your documentary. Would you like to do something on blah? That's always, I guess that's always a chance. I mean, the way uh, sitting here right now, that, that hasn't happened. And, and I have to think really seriously about whether I would do something, um, you, you know, in like definitely a documentary again, just, just because I know, unless there's a lot of money up front, I, you know, it's just, you shouldn't talk about money. Uh, it's, I don't know. I would say, um, I would say not. I, I think my plan is to write another book. Um, I think I owe my readers that and I would like to get back into writing, so I'll do that. But but I would say that I do have a, actually a couple of you know sort of feature film scripts kicking around, which which I've sort of I've just I don't know. I woke up and I'd done them one day. Don't know where I found, found the time to do them, but they're out there, and that might be you know one of those might be my next uh, project if if someone takes it up, and, and also you know. Um, Hollywood legend Bill Mechanic uh, options the Vin has optioned the Vin Cooper character, so there could be a oh, film wow. of Vin sort of in the near nearish sort of future. Bill depending dependent on Bill Runner. So who knows? But I I, I am sort of actually now I'm sitting down and, and um, plotting the next Vin Cooper um, uh, book, and I think this one will be again you know back to. Um, the first person for its entirety through through Vin's eyes, just because it seems to be that's what what people like. It's, you can't please you know everyone all of the time, but I, I think um, I think that's what I'm going to do. Way to please yourself. So on that note, we'll go ahead and finish up so you can get back to writing. Now this the movie is available on iTunes, Google Play, and Amazon currently in the states, right? And it is yes, that's all. That's all true. However, now it's on Amazon Prime. Oh, fantastic! You you can stream it live and free. Oh wow! And the movie is Trial of the Midnight Rider. Yes, it's it's Trial of Midnight Rider. So you search that and you you'll get it. So, but the full name of the documentary is Trial of Midnight Rider, Railroaded in the Deep South. That's right. And on the web, you're at davidrollins.net. 
And correct. Twitter, you are David Rollins one, correct? Correct. And you're also on Facebook. Uh, your author page yeah. is David Rollins ninety nine. Correct. Thank you so much for coming on this. It was really awesome talking to you. Uh, it was my pleasure. Just one thing: what I've done um, for Vin, you know, so many. I, I get you know emails from people who actually think he lives as a as a real human being. So I've started a um, an Instagram account. Um, and so you can sort of, and I post on that quite regularly as, as been doing whatever it is he does, which has been a lot of fun. Cool. Where can we find that? It's, um, Vin Cooper 04. Okay. And uh, the 04 is, is, that's his rank. He's a major and that's an 04 in, uh, uh gotcha. in military. So is it the letter 04 or 04? Yeah. Yeah. 04. Okay. The, the, the number, the numeral, zero. Okay. Zero four, yeah. Fantastic. Mm-hmm.